travel, it's one of life's greatest pleasures. When we journey abroad, we discover new places and meet fascinating people, but we also gain perspective and take on a wider view of the world around us. That was Trevor Ranges, and I'm Scott Coates. After more than 25 years living and working in Asia, we've developed an amazing network of interesting characters throughout the region. Talk Travel Asia is our way of sharing them with you. Plug in and get connected to hot tips, interesting perspectives, and expert travel advice as we cultivate travel insight through intelligent conversation. Welcome to Talk Travel Asia, episode 37. This one is Trekking Asia's Tea Trails with Jeff Fux. And, uh, you know, this is pretty cool because in a day and age where everything's digital and we can seemingly find every topic at our fingertips, it's rare nowadays compared to, say, 50 years ago to meet someone who's a true explorer. People that have ventured out into truly unique and remote lands, have had uh, in-depth cultural exchanges and been to places where outsiders have perhaps never been or not been for a long time and then be able to bring those tales back and share them with others. And our guest today, uh, Canadian Jeff Fox, is just that. He's a true explorer, wouldn't you say, Trevor? Yeah, really interesting guy. Uh, definitely inspirational to go out there and see things and do things uh, uh, driven by passion as well. Yeah, and I mean, in 2006 and seven, he trekked more than 5,000 kilometers over seven and a half months through some of the world's most remote and challenging terrain to experience and then write a book about one of the world's great Tea Roots, the Tea Horse Trail, and that ran from Yunnan in China uh, up all the way through Tibet. And I mean, he's seen things that, you know, really few Western eyes have ever seen and been on trails and spots you could maybe argue no, no one's been. And I've actually read the book and it, it's pretty cool. And you've you've been to Yunnan, have you not, Trevor? Yeah, you know, I've been to Yunnan in China, which is just some spectacular countryside. And I've seen the terraced rice fields and tea fields and and it's incredibly mm. beautiful but we're talking 5000 kilometers that's like walking across <laughs> the entire united states so while you know on the one hand i yeah. immediately picture snowy himalayas um it's probably going through some incredibly diverse terrain from from yunnan onwards yeah and i mean i was lucky enough to cycle for about two and a half weeks through tibet and i mean that was four or five thousand meters and height windy difficult but i mean we were you know, on an actual road, whereas you can figure Jeff and his team must have been like on footpaths in super remote areas. And I went for a stretch, I think it was nine days without a shower. And I mean, it's really it has nothing to do with our episode, but it went through my head. I'm like, I bet you this guy went months and months without a shower, or like just <laughs> even access to like a real hearty good meal. Like you would really have to go native, right? Like you'd be living off butter tea and just like just literally the little bit of stuff out there, you would completely have to go native to make it happen. Yeah, I mean, entirely. And uh, I mean, Yunnan is quite a developed area, and I guess that's where he's based uh, part of the time. Mm. Um, I, I yeah. feel too bad now that uh, I didn't get a chance to meet him because I went to Yunnan uh, when I was doing the fellowship yeah. with the Asia Pacific Leadership Program at the East West Center, which you also did. Right. Um, and yeah. I guess that he does have an affiliation uh, with the program. Yeah, and, and officially a legal one now because he married one of my cohort from G11, uh, Julie. Um, so yeah, there's an APLP tie-in there for both of us. Why don't you tell us, uh, before we go further, a little bit about our sponsor today, Trevor? I know they're near and dear to your heart. Yeah, my pleasure. Our sponsor today is Beervana. Beervana is Asia's most amazeballs craft beer distributor, importing mm. and distributing tasty American ales and other craft beers from around the world. Um, to over 300 venues now in Thailand, a few outlets in Vietnam, and soon to open in Jakarta and Bali. 
Now, uh, I know, Scott, that you yeah. were recently asking about home delivery. Um, well, you know, you can download yes. the Beer the Beer Me smartphone app. Um, that cool. can give you info on related beer events, help you find a nearby location to have a craft beer. And through yeah. the Craft Beer Club on the SeekBeerVana.com website, get home beer delivery. Yeah, they're doing good things. And I know are kind of single-handedly responsible for the explosion in craft in, in Thailand. And, and now they're in Indonesia and, and maybe Bali. And uh, so thanks uh, a ton to them for, for supporting it. Yeah. Yep. Thank you, Beervana. So should we just get into our guest? Yeah, let's uh, go ahead and introduce Jeff. All right. Well, I've read our guest book, The Ancient T-Horse Road, some time ago and uh, really enjoyed it. It takes you places uh, and to meet people in spots that most of us will never get to and, and frankly, probably have a tough time imagining. Uh, Jeff is the first Westerner to have completed the entire T-Horse route through the Himalayas and to experience more than a dozen unique cultures along the way. And with uh, a trekking partner, he also recently completed a month-long expedition along the ancient nomadic salt route above 4,000 meters, also becoming the first ever Westerners to do so. So uh, here we're going to do it. We're going to chat with Jeff Fuchs. Hey, Jeff, how are you doing today? And uh, where are you joining us from? Uh, Joining you from Honolulu, uh, one of those impeccably boring days that Hawaii gets quite often. Mm-hmm. Boring in Hawaii, I can't imagine. I spent five we, we months We don't believe there. you. I, I loved it, but uh, lucky the, you. But yeah, but there's no seasons. There's I, no seasons here. I suppose so, and there's no snow, and there's no super high mountains for you either. Well, Jeff, uh, now that we know that, um, I believe you're Canadian like me. Where are you originally from, and how did you end up living and trekking in Asia? Yeah, from a small town outside of Ottawa um, called Manitou, okay. and did stints did stints growing up in Switzerland and the mountains can be summed up uh, with a, a bit of a uh, how should we put this a firecracker of a Hungarian grandmother who insisted that energy be spent going up snow mountains rather than sitting at home so uh, mountains were introduced at age four and I was climbing by by six Wow yeah so mountains have been there as long as oxygen has been there um, but Okay. Yeah, they've they've been there sort of as a permanent fixture. And then how did you end up uh, over in Asia on a kind of more longer-term professional capacity? I basically left Montreal. I thought I had what I wanted, and I didn't. The Himalayas had been beckoning for, for many, many years. Um, and I journeyed to what I thought would be going through the tea regions of Japan. I didn't get to Japan for seven years. Um, I was working in... Taiwan with a tea company, discovered their mountains, couldn't get off that island, and yeah, who knew that the mountains of Taiwan, uh, stupendous climbing, highest peaks um, east of the Himalayas, and indigenous culture sort of pocketed all over these wonderful peaks and valleys. Um, So that provided a kind of a launch point for this um, not not simply the mountains, but the indigenous aspect of the mountains and and the relationships that these indigenous people had with uh, certainly with the mountains, but seeing the mountains as something a little less than daunting spires to climb, but more hmm. of almost in a almost in a deity kind of way, and it and it, it, it piqued the interest. Um, and after that, it was simply getting back into magazine work, which I'd been doing, and trying to tell. Uh, the oral narratives from as close a perspective as I could get from the indigenous point of view rather than just coming in there and doing everything subjectively trying to get these oral narratives translated 
and that led to the Himalayas and, by extension, the T-Horse Road. Wow. Yeah, that's what I was wondering, because uh, you, you mentioned that the mountaineering aspect is coming from an early age, but then you mentioned tea when you were just talking about Japan. So was doing the, the ancient tea horse trail just a combination of a fascination with tea and trekking and history, or you know, what led you to that trail in particular? I knew nothing about this, this, this trade route. It actually predates the Silk Road, and I'd argue that it probably had more of an impact on Central Asia and Himalayan and perhaps even Chinese fringe history, the fringes of the dynasties, than the Silk Road. Um, I, was, I was on an ill-fated expedition to climb a mountain and one of the Tibetan, he's now a, a, a long, long friend of mine, but uh, he, he and I were watching yet another day come and go. The weather wasn't cooperating and he pointed at dusk at this little wisp of a trail that came down from a mountain. And, and as, as these people do, they didn't make a, he didn't make a big fuss of it. He just said, oh, that's the way I came from India as a boy. <laughs> and I, I, of course, asked, well, that, that pathway, what, what is it? That leads to India. And he goes, oh, that leads to the Middle East. My father and I came when I was a young boy on that trail. The Tibetans call it Jalam. Um, the, Tib the, you know, the Tibetans have a long history with it. The Chinese call it Chamadao or Chamagudao. And we made a pact um, almost 13 years ago that somehow we would tell the tale. And every time I went back to research, I thought, oh, maybe this, this obsession will, will leave. But this idea that tea and mountains could come together in this 1300, 1400-year-old history, I was, I was hooked early on. Very to, cool. To trying, yeah, to just trying to tell the story, but also trying to do the route. Um, yeah, to, to physically travel it. We really want to pick your brains today about the actual walking of the route and what you saw and experienced. But let me just back up one sec. Is how did you even first come to, you know, be really entranced with tea? You mentioned you went to... You were going to go to Japan, but then you worked in tea in, in Taiwan. How, what's your history with tea prior to this? I have to go back to the, my father's Hungarian, uh, slightly lunatic side. Growing up um, <laughs> was a bit of Asian obsession in my, in my father. So we always had tea around the house. I didn't know what I was drinking, but it was tea. Um, so tea was already in the, in the fuel pipes. I went to Taiwan and sort of by accident, a bunch of accidents, uh, drinking tea in a tea shop led to me meeting this old uh, tea growing cultivating family of Taiwan mm -hmm. and in time I realized I had to do two things I had to learn how to say I, I had to learn to distinguish teas and I had to learn Mandarin mm. so uh, basically there was this idea that yeah I was going to learn about tea through these mentors and they were old-fashioned uh, kind of finicky, neurotic tea makers with a tradition of doing the fermented, semi-fermented oolongs. Mm -hmm. In time, I ended up shooting an ad campaign for this very, very old-fashioned tea company. Um, but sort of the ensuing time was spent drinking loads of tea and 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 getting the first clean high of my life. It didn't have an, <laughs> an after effect. And, and just being happily ripped and, and basically learning uh, that tea is far more of um, 
it's more than a stimulant. It's sort of this eternal commodity in Asian culture, but it's also something that that inevitably brings people together. And I remember my grandmother in Hungary would speak of this idea that anything that brings people together, i.e. in her case, wine, is a good thing. Cool. Is something, yeah, kind of eternal. All right. Well, we have the backstory now. Cool. So, so... So now, now, yeah, now we know some of the inspiration here. Tell us about the actual route. Uh, where did you start out, uh, departure from, and uh, did you anticipate, you know, how long and arduous it might have been? Yeah, there was there was bits and pieces of research um, that we did, but the the in the years leading up to the expedition, the best research was inevitably sitting with these ancients, these this last generation of traders and muleteers and accountants, men, women. Um, and a lot of them were from the minorities of the western fringe of Yunnan, so Tibetans, Bai, Yi, Hani, these these people. And I had no idea what I was getting into. I thought, yeah, this this you know we can walk this. I had no idea of the logistics of permits. Um, basically, I had this idea that if I f I went to the source followed it by foot with a mule and a couple of hardy mountain guys, I'd be, I'd be okay. Um, what ended up happening was I had no funding. It was still a dream. I was going to go bankrupt, uh, bankrolling this thing. Um, so in a two-month period, it seems like everything sort of came together. Um, I got more information uh, basically telling me that what I thought I would be doing was uh, completely wrong. Uh, that the journey I thought would take two and a half months was going to take at least six months. Ooh. That the budget, of course, the budget, the ever glorious budget in these projects was going to go up by 300%. Um, and that actually logistically getting permits into Tibet, into these very isolated pockets of Tibet, which is sort of off the, the tourist lines, was going to require finagling a little bit of uh, drinking with the uh, with the authorities and a little bit of okay I'm going through there to tell a historical story I'm not going in there to stir up any political pots hmm. um, so a budget came up through Penguin basically Penguin Books came in and said yeah tell the story we're going to front the money and uh, you know do that thing um, and then traveling, that was probably as, uh, as, as divisive as, as any uh, of the daunting terrains we went through, just getting the budget together. And then it was a selection process of getting not only mountain-hardened people who could rocket up mountains, but importantly was to understand what we wanted to do was to speak to people in their dialect, we wanted to be able to go off the off grid if we had to to track down these ancient muleteers, um, and the journey ended up taking seven and a half months, and three quarters of that was by foot. It was extraordinary. It was daunting. It's one of those things that sort of uh, creates its own little memory palace in the mind because it becomes a part of your life. Um, but basically, on the journey. Uh, this idea of tea and salt and pashmina, these eternal commodities, uh, became kind of a, a fixed point, as did these, these precious elders and ancients um, who traded up until the mid-1950s when trade the caravans, mules, yaks, and sheep 
were made sort of obsolete with the building of highways. Wow. Uh, um, and, and it became a bit of a small life in a nutshell. It became... Um, all I did for a year and a half was either trek the route, research the route, go back over parts of the route, um, and bind with these people I traveled with. Um, so just to, uh, for people that haven't read the book, or you, you walked over 5,000 kilometers, is that right? Yeah, we traveled. Okay. So I didn't actually walk sure. 5,000 kilometers, but there's two strands of this. this it, it's an interesting, it, it, it plays into the historical inaccuracies that, that plagued the West when they look at Asia. There's actually two strands of the T-Horse Road. One, the elder, if I call it, I call it that, from Yunnan, which went up through Yunnan, through parts of Burma, up to Lhasa and beyond. And then there was a second route which sort of took over in the Song Dynasty, the 9th, 10th century. That started ushering tea onto the um, Tibetan plateau. And when I say Tibet, or well, when I use this, this road of the Tea Horse Road, it was a series of striding paths and routes that sort of divided, striated, and then came back together. So it more like a number of routes that passed through villages, went through city centers, divided and then did their trading and then came back. So, um, so yes, this, this is a big muscular winding coiling series of routes that we call a road. Wow. Now. Yeah. And earlier you just mentioned it as, as kind of a small trail that your friend pointed to on the horizon. I've been in the Yunnan area and I know there's, you know, some pretty steep gorges and ravines and, and whatnot there. And I guess it's going to pass all the way through the Himalaya to, to India or the Middle East. But, you know, what was the terrain route like? Like, what did it look like? Was it all like snowy and expansive or, you know, did you travel through some ravines? Tell us a little bit about like what, what people could have seen had they traveled along with you. Yeah, it was, it was barren. This was done in a time we, we were, the permits that we got, just to give a bit of context, the permits we got, I don't think we could ever get the permits to travel through these regions again, um, which is a shame, but obviously for selfish and slightly self-interested interests, I'm, I'm happy. Um, what's amazing about the terrain, and you, you mentioned Yunnan, is you, you'll go over snow passes. We had a blizzard two weeks on into the journey the first of the snow passes, which basically is an entry zone from what we know as Yunnan or onto the Tibetan plateau proper. Um, we almost lost two team members. Um, and it was, I've been through blizzards for many years. I've been in the Arctic and I've, I've never seen a blizzard drop like this. We had about two meters of visibility. We were on hands and knees and this is two weeks into a journey we know that's going to take us six months. Um, this terrain, this particular pass, had been described as two-faced. Um, in the springtime when the flowers are out, it's this glorious kind of spiky series of ridge lines that just drops into this massive redstone valley. And we'd been warned that the, the, the opposing side of that was this place where blizzards dropped out of nowhere and it because of the air pressure systems you'd have storms literally sucked into this this almost valley onto this pass and created within a kilometer or two so storm systems that hit 10 kilometers away would likely not hit us but this 
this zone that the Tibetans described as, as basically it can turn into a white hell. Mm -hmm. You had these storm systems literally developing. You could see these cloud formations develop in the sky above you and start churning and darkening. So that, that was one extreme. Um, and then two days after that, we were in dry valleys where cactus would be growing and silt along the Yangtze River. Um, the, the Tibetans call cactus Hanjulapa, they call it the ghost's hands. And they kept it telling me that, oh yeah, you'll see snow and then uh, you'll, you know, the same day or the next week or whatever, you'll see cactus. So we had dust storms in these beautiful river valleys. We had amazing uh, tropic uh, zones along some of the riverbeds in Tibet, and incredibly lush areas where apples and apricots were growing. And then you had, of course, the, you know, beyond the landscapes, you had um, these cultures that certainly for me, I was sort of calling the Himalayas, oh, they're Himalayan people living, you know, in tents, blustering around. And I couldn't have been more wrong. There's so much diversity up, up on the plateau. And then, of course, the source of all the, the, the great green stimulant fuel, the, the, the subtropics of Yunnan, um, were these minorities who are, from a DNA perspective, actually linked to some of the Tibetan peoples, you know, 2,000 kilometers to the north. They're living in these sort of subtropic bastions where you have old-growth arboreal tea forests, 15-meter tea trees um, that are, you know, 1,500 years old. So at the end, it was a bit of a kaleidoscope of what, this is the same route? This is the same part of the world. Mm. Um, yeah, and, and as much as the, 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 the physical landscapes were something that were magnificent and utterly stunning, you, you had these cultures that seemed to have fused ways of life into these very desolate little pockets and lived in, in, in a magnificent kind of harmony. Wow. Um, all with their own tale of tea. Uh, just, just add that so, on. So, I mean, if you can't answer this, that's fine. I mean, I'm sure you learned a ton of stuff along the way, but I mean, looking back at it, um, is there is there a singular kind of lesson or point that really sticks out or thing that you learned from taking part in such a massive journey? Yeah, I think so. I, I keep going back to this. I, I advocate mountain rights because if we if we understand the mountains a bit better, the third pole and the cultures that have taken care and, and really not done too much damage up there, if we listen to those, those voices up there, there's an incredibly rich, deep pool uh, from oral narratives that we can learn about not only history, but about culture, about trade. Um, and I'm, I, I guess this one big burning ball of, of light that I came back with was to preserve the mountains. If we preserve the cultures in the mountains, the environment of the mountains, we, we preserve their legacies. And with so much of the fresh water coming out of the mountains, with so much uh, interest and obsession right now on, on fresh water, clean fresh water, um, you know, I, I've heard Tibetans for the last 17 years talk about taking care of the mountains. They're not literate people, but they're intuitively aware of what, what their land hmm. means. Um, yeah, and I'd say we have to maybe listen a little 
more carefully to what's going on in the mountains. And, and certainly on a sort of a more esoteric level, tease eternal value as a stimulant, as a, uh, as a, as a commodity, as a trading piece, the history of tea. It's such a, such a broad, wonderful wow, thing. That's a great takeaway. You know, I'm curious now, um, since you said that it might not be possible to, to do this trek any longer, probably, I don't know, geopolitical reasons or, or whatnot, maybe just logistical difficulties, but are there portions of this that the average traveler might be able to experience in some way, you know, some part of Yunnan or something that has some of this ancient culture, or this, this tie to tea that, that people might be able to experience? Oh, for sure. I think Yunnan is, is the point in which they've preserved, they're certainly promoting the T-Horse Road in Yunnan, and as commercial as it becomes, it's still wonderfully off-grid. Um, there's parts where you can just, you can literally trek for two weeks off-grid, just popping into little villages, and um, um, I mean, on a sort of a side note, we traveled with a film team about two months ago. We did the entire route from Yunnan through the Himalayas as much as we could, down into Nepal and Mustang. And, and I have to say that as a part-time resident of Yunnan for a decade, Yunnan's promoted it and preserved it in a way that, you know, there's negatives, but they've done a really good job in kind of um, raising the awareness of what a particular uh, geography or village, however small, how did it contribute to the T-Horse Road? And, and I think it's one of those things where, you know, you can't stop people from traveling. You can just promote it. And those who want to find some purity can still go to those promoted regions and find those little avenues, those little swaths of land where nobody yeah. went. Um, I'd, say, I'd say in Asia, Yunnan has done a, an amazingly... They've been very proactive in trying to protect the route and promote it. And they've done so, to their credit, in a sort of a, a very good demographic way. They've promoted the minority aspects and the contributions, not only the Han culture, but the, how important the minorities were along this route. Cool. And is Kunming sort of the main center jumping off point for there? It, yeah, Kunming is the you know, pretty much center point for tea, uh, import, export, and it's also... The sort of stepping point if you want to head south into Sichuanbana, the tea yeah. regions, or further north in Shangri-La where I was. Yeah, Kunming is sort of the epicenter. Okay. Um, hey, I want to ask you, I, I read on your site that you just did another trip along the ancient nomadic salt route. Can you quickly tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I, I mean, the salt, the tea, the pashmina, these, these commodities keep coming up. The salt route, um, this we found out about it traveling on the T-Horse Road. And basically, the salt and tea were the two eternal commodities, and to some degree they still are in the, in the Himalayas. But the salt route in particular was through southern Qinghai province. There's these, it's like an altiplano. You have these series of um, huge, massive uh, salt lakes which are drying mm -hmm. up. And basically, they appear as sort of, they kind of appear as these, these massive lunar landscapes with little bits of ice. And yeah, it's, it's phenomenal. 
It's, uh, but this salt was being ushered down into the market centers of Lhasa and Kathmandu from these zones. And the same caravans that took tea and pashmina and copper and all these other things like corals, these, these caravans of yak and sheep were also carrying uh, salt. All right, Jeff, uh, as we're wrapping things up here, why don't you tell us what's your favorite kind of tea and then uh, what's next uh, on your agenda? So tea, pu'er tea, hands down. I, I migrated from oolongs, which are complicated to make, complicated to harvest, complicated to share secrets with, to pu'er tea, which grows only in Yunnan, harvested. Um, it comes in the fermented or the oxidized uh, darker versions and it comes in this raw really astringent uh, sweet finishing green pungent tea and I yeah I th this is it for simplicity it's the tea that traveled first it's from the origin of all tea tea can trace its DNA back to southern Yunnan all points of the compass Japanese tea Korean teas teas in Kenya now they can all trace some of their genetic code back to the south of Yunnan or western mm. Sichuan. Yeah, and it's the tea that was traded along the tea horse road for the majority of times. Um, and the Tibetans have a special word for the tea, the pu'er tea, um, and they just call it ja kabo, or the bitter tea. And that's the one that lit their mouths and their taste buds for 13 oh, centuries. Cool. Wow. Yeah. And then uh, what's, what's next on the radar for you? Next on the radar is, uh, so another, another look at trade routes, but this one's going to be another uh, route that doesn't get much, it, it was an old route through Ladakh and it hit, it goes, it sort of starts in Leh, goes through Ladakh, parts of Ladakh and Zanskar into Kashmir. And it was kind of this, I don't know, it was a bit of a hybrid trade route. Um, and it was done in the winter with yak. So they used yak to go over the, the snow passes to deliver a kind of herbal medicine that could be picked in late summer and autumn. And they'd get these herbal medicines to um, different points, different market capitals. So uh, setting up for that and trying to, you know, go through these, these wonderful loopholes that you do when you set up a, a journey and you're slightly, uh, yeah, when you're slightly ideal and neurotic about it. Wow, that's super cool. Yeah, looking forward. And that'll be fueled by tea, by the way. Just, just letting you know. Yeah. Well, thanks <laughs> uh, a ton for making well, time for us. I, I, you're literally a, a tough guy to, to find in the in the world. So thanks for uh, giving us a bit of your time while you're relaxing in Hawaii. And uh, I look forward to following your pursuits. Big pleasure from this side, and lots of love from the Aloha places, which I'm just starting to learn Good. about. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Go. Go play in the rainbows for us. <laughs> I will. I will. Okay. Take care. <laughs> thanks, Jeff. Wow, that was super cool. I got to say, uh, you know, when I read his book, I, I've spent a lot of time in tea areas in northern Thailand, so I could kind of envision what maybe Yunnan looks like. I've cycled through parts of Tibet, uh, but I really wanted to talk to him. And man, I could have done that for hours, but that guy has seen some crazy stuff. Yeah, I'm definitely interested in reading the book now, which, you know, I, I didn't know that he had written a book about the experience, but um, he certainly has some really interesting things to say i mean just the the challenges of preparing um the challenges of of doing you know it seems like mm. an incredible adventure yeah i think if he uh he's mentioned doing a new edition if he did a new edition 
it'd be great to have them include a little bit more about kind of preparation and logistics for it as well and 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 yeah just how you go about that because i mean i know even when we just went on a fully fledged kind of semi-escorted tour biking there was a lot of paperwork and and visas and and so forth and uh, you know i've done treks for like a couple weeks but i mean i was at my wits end with just (laughs) being dirty and needing a taste of home i can't conceive for months and months and months how you could be that far out there like i don't know if i can do it could you I don't know. It, it, really, the question is, would you would you want to? Because I think once you're out there, like he was saying, <laughs> two weeks into the trek, you get hit by this massive snowstorm. Yeah. It's not like you can just cancel. I mean, I guess you could turn around and, yeah. and walk weeks back, but but I don't think that's the way you're going to succeed on this kind of mission. So I think you got to go into it um, with the kind of passion that he has. Otherwise, I don't I don't think yeah. you're going to be doing it at all. Yeah, what I like about this one and looking at the the episodes we have coming up in the next few months is we have a few people doing kind of like extreme things, which we haven't really touched a lot on on Talk Travel Asia. So, yeah, I think it's been kind of fun to open up uh, like a a new realm, so to speak, and, and begin talking to people that have really really pushed the travel envelope but he he made some pretty cool suggestions there for people to get a taste of what he's talking about as well right with going to Yunnan yeah I definitely think that you know portions of the trail are probably doable especially going to the Yunnan region which he obviously is is really passionate about and and you're right about the upcoming episodes for 2016 Uh, we definitely do have some uh, extreme outgoing kind of people uh, that we're going to have on the show and since it is 2016 we were talking about our our 2015 dream travel destinations hopefully you and I Mm. will be going on that motorbike expedition out to Priyakon Temple in Cambodia and then we can do an episode on that sometime soon the dream would be alive you know one, one final thing for me that i thought was really kind of cool when we were asking him about it is like how something like such a simple staple like tea and then asked him what he learned and it all came back to like environment and just what's going on in the mountains the importance of storytelling and while technology changes so quick now it was the basics right it was like you know caring for nature listening to nature talking to people sharing stories and i thought man that's that's just a really good message yeah, I think uh, the book probably would inspire people uh, not only to, to you know follow their passions, but but maybe also to uh, you know find more interest in native cultures and and apparently what some of these native cultures Jeff has uh, been engaged with are actually passionate about preserving their environment, which is something that that we should learn from too. Yeah, well, uh, thanks very much to Jeff for joining us. Thank you so much to Birvana for uh, being the sponsor of this episode. Trevor, why don't you take us out? Yeah, thank you, Scott, for being my co-host once again. And thank Mm -hmm. you all for listening to another episode of Talk Travel Asia. We'll be back in two weeks where Scott and I will be talking about something hopefully equally fascinating. Thanks for joining us on Talk Travel Asia. We look forward to sharing with you again soon. Hey Scott, do you remember the time we walked on top of the wall at Angkor Thom and Cam-